got a head a jump a head start here on the list making just to kind of expedite things a, a bit I wanted to go really quickly through the context setting on this again I I think Hebrews is such a big book you know 13 chapters is a lot to try to piece together the flow of thought but if we keep going back over and over and over this stuff it eventually s s kind of sinks in and sticks and Quite amazingly, I have found when I do it for you in preparing my charts, it is so beneficial to me too because it helps me, again, plant my feet squarely and keep them on target with that plumb line of what is it that this author is doing. So once again, tell me what our major subject is in the book of Hebrews. Jesus. And concerning Jesus, what is the qualifier concerning him? That he is better, better than all kinds of things, right? So the better than quality comes up over and over and over in this book. So as we go through this book and we approach where we are right now, which is in chapter 12, at the close of chapter 10, those last four or five verses, you see a transitional statement that shows you there's a lead-in to a whole new sub major subject matter. So what we see is there's a major segment division that occurs between chapter 10 and 11. And so chapters 1 to 10, what is the major segment for that if, as far as the information on the whole? What is it concerning? What is the major subject? Thank you. It's so hard to read my board, right? <laughs> it's justification doctrines. Basically, through there, you go in chapters 1 to 3, tell me what do we learn doctrinally about who Jesus is? Who is he in chapters 1 to 3? He is God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. Both of those qualities are important. First of all, that he is God and that he is the son, the begotten son, and he's the one who is prophesied the Christ. All right? So he's Jesus, God, the son. In four to seven, then the next major seg segment comes up, and what is the major subject starting in chapter four through seven? The high priesthood. And therefore, and in that, concerning Jesus, what is his relationship to the, in, a, in the priesthood role? He is the high priest, and what kind of high priest is he? A better than, right? He's better and according to the order of Melchizedek. But he is a better than priest, right? Because what is the comparison that's going on in the book of Hebrews? He, the old covenant and the new covenant, exactly. So throughout this whole... Um, uh, book, we see it being addressed to the Jews primarily, right? And that the, in that, then the subject is to convince them that Jesus is better than their old system in approaching God. And in this segment, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus is a better high priest. And for how long? forever. And why is that a significant part of that title for chapters 4 to 7? Why is the forever important? Yes, because in the old system there was temporal, and how long did those priests preside as high priest? Until they died. 
or until the, until later in history they were bought off and and you know they exchanged they began to really corrupt the whole system. Okay, a better than high priest forever in four to seven. Then we go into chapters eight to ten. What subject comes up there is the major part for that segment, the covenant subject, right? And in regards to that, how does Jesus relate in that? He is how is he better there? He's mediator of a better covenant. Jesus, mediator of a better covenant. Okay. And then in 11 to 13, we come now to that. We've we've hit that transition. You can almost just draw a line right here to help remind you. Chapters 1 through 10 then pertain to justification doctrines. But then what happens starting in 11? What kind of things seem to keep coming up? The faith qualities. And concerning faith, what? Application of it. Lots of verbs in there. Doing and doing and doing, right? That we are to participate in this in this there's supposed to be some kind of a result because of your justification and I think that is really important for us to always remember that now that we're in chapter these last six this last segment and we're in the subject of sanctification don't ever confuse the statements to be saying um, you're going to do something in order to attain your justification right? You're not doing it to attain justification. What we're going to learn today and what we have learned all week in your homework is that, that sanctification has a purpose in your life and he, he gives us reason for motivation in living out sanctification as well. All right, so in 11 to 13 then it's um, sanctification as the major segment portion. Sure, of course. Uh I'm so sorry. Is that in your way? Blocking your view? (laughs) Okay. Major subjects then that come up. Um, What do we see in chapter 11 as our major subject? Faith. Faith. That one is so easy that it's almost ridiculous, right? Then in chapter 12, we have at least two or three really major segments. We have quite a few key words, but what are some of the, the major things that you would say if you had to pull just two or three things out in there? Discipline, excellent. Discipline is one of the major subjects in chapter 12. Endurance. And concerning our subject today, what is our major subject? What have we just spent all week working on? Did we work on our homework? <laughs> you looked up all kinds of key, of key verses and key words. Um, do you need me to help you find the right, the right verse on this? Hold on, I'll open my, I got to get my observation worksheet open here. <laughs> Go to chapter, or chapter 12, verse 14. You're to pursue this. What is it? pursuing holiness in in that's down that's in another verse that's in verse 10 but in verse 14 you pursue peace with all men and what 
sanctification. Now, if you had to pick out, of now, just, just because I don't want to lead you totally, and I want you to just think I'm leading you to that, I want you to just tell me, by looking at what we have looked at in chapter 12 so far, how important is that word sanctification? How key is it in this whole chapter on the whole? Does it relate to pretty much everything that's being said and talked about? When you did your word study on the word sanctification, what does it mean to be sanctified? Okay, to, to be holy. It, now, not that part is one of your scriptures, not your key word study though, right? Okay, to be holy it is the word sanctification. As a matter of fact, when you did your keyword studies on the word sanctification and on the word holiness, what was your conclusion? Basically, they are synonyms to one another. Okay, so in that, then, what you come to see, then, is that sanctification... Um, uh, there you go. It's the action quality of your faith, and it results in the holiness, right? So sanctification results in holiness, and, they, and for that reason, they become synonyms with one another. All right. So let me put this up here. Endur uh, discipline, endurance, and sanctification. Oh, yeah, there is a warning in there. Of course, we're, yes, and we are going to look at verses that actually state that very clearly. Um, it, it's a little early to ask this kind of a question, maybe, but because you bring it up, you know, being that's true, that we've seen a verse this week that says, without sanctification, you will not see the Lord. What does that tell you about people who have simple lip service to God, but n nothing else in their life that indicates their salvation present. The indication would be that possibly they're not saved, right? Does this book of Hebrews, so far as we've gone through it, have, have you seen indications in here where this author actually warns people to actually examine the fruits in their life to see whether or not they are truly in faith? Is there, do you feel like he's challenging them and saying, I don't think you're saved? Is that what he's doing? What do you think he's doing? Okay. He's just covering all the bases as a good pastor would, as a good shepherd of a flock. He is preaching a sermon to a congregation. Within that congregation, it'd be like me amongst all of you. I don't Truly, I don't know which one of you have done your homework or have not, right? So it's, it's incumbent upon me to try to draw from you through a general conversation to the masses, a conversation which helps you to uh, bring down to concise, uh, uh, declarative thoughts about the subject, whatever our subject is, right? And it means I basically throw out questions and I throw out challenges to all of you without pointing a finger at any single one, correct? Yes. Okay, so that's what's going on in this book. This author is asking them, um, through the progression of this, of this sermon, it seems to be a sermon to me, with even an altar call at the end of it where he, he literally gives them a call to come into faith. And 
and his desire is that they have examined their own hearts. So it's not for the purpose of us, right, to look up a, upon someone else's life and say they are or they aren't, right? However, would you say that there are times when that is a beneficial thing to do? Did you see anything in our work this week that indicated that maybe we are our brother's keeper? Just a little bit. Our brother's keeper. Are we our brother's keeper regarding um, challenging people to examine their hearts? I would say, can anybody explain that a little bit? Or, or even give an example in your own life. Are there people in your own life that you know they make a claim to having faith in Jesus? They, ha they say they're saved, right? But yet their life is totally devoid of anything that indicates that they are saved. I, I bring this up. I have someone in my life that, that recently passed away who had a f claim to a faith, and yet that person was not affiliated with any church, did not have a pastor, uh, was not connected in any way. And so they had to call in someone from the hospital to just come in and, and you know, pray with them and their family and to do what's appropriate according to their, the re religious customs of their faith system. And so when you, ha when you hear stories like that, and if you've experienced that even in your own family or among friends of yours, um, once that person passes, once their life is over, how much influence can we have on them? None. Was there any responsibility on our part? And do you ever question yourself? Man, I should have said something. I should have talked to him more. I mean, because once they're gone, it's, it's done, right? And you, there's no going back and you can't fix it. So I feel like to me this week, because of some of the questions that Kay asked us and because of the self-examination that she um, put out there for us individually um, in our homework assignment, lots of application questions this week. For me, one, you know, one of the main things that, also, that came up to me because of this person's death also in my kind of my sphere of friends sort of out there, not a close friend, but just someone I know. This made me stop and ponder very uh, much about the idea that, you know, could I have done more? You know, what else could I have said? Obviously, I'm not going to beat myself up. I know this is all in the hand of God. I'm not personally responsible for anyone's salvation. However, am I responsible to try to make an effort to have conversations like this. Yes. <coughs> okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're thinking. You're doing really good, Lise. Um, Absolutely. Now, of course, what's very interesting about that verse is the, 
is the, um, the pronouns that are in there. It's telling you to do it for yourself first and foremost. And then if you don't, then it, it will be done for you or upon you in, in some way. Or, I mean, there's actually a couple of different interpretations on that. Last week, we talked about that particular verse. And I shared with you a little story, I think, didn't I, about K. that K. Arthur teaches about, about the sheep and about shepherding. Okay, I'll save that for a little bit later. There's two possible ways to interpret that particular verse, and both are, both are acceptable, and both of them apply just fine. Um, but there's two ways of looking at that particular verse, and we'll go there. But yes, I mean, w- if, you, if you're able to make straight paths for, your, for yourself, but also make straight paths for those who are in the, the sphere of your world, right? When you walk, are you being an example Yes. Okay. So, all right. Let's just let's just go step back into the the mechanical part of this and let's just try to look at this subject of sanctification all and we're going to try to look at a variety of ramifications of this particular uh quality of our faith walk with God. We are now justified. Okay? Are 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 our minds turned into that? We are in justification. We're already saved. We're not talking about getting saved. We are saved. Now, once saved, what is our responsibility? Now, for me, this brings up in the back of my mind the subject of covenant because in covenant, are there not responsibilities in, in that relationship with God? Yes. Are those responsibilities that you have once you come into faith what got you into faith? Please say no. (laughs) No, because you are saved how? By grace, grace, through faith. That's exactly right. Okay, so now that we're in faith, we're going to talk about sharing in his holiness because this particular chapter, that's what's brought up. He says, for um, he talks about the subject of disciplining and how God is disciplining us as a father disciplines a son. And he says about earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best to them. But God, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Um, And after that, he talks about this subject that Lise just brought up, about the strengthening the hands uh, that are weak and the knees that are feeble and making straight paths for our feet. And then he closes it in verse 14 saying, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There's a warning there, right? In other words, basically examine your life. If you aren't seeing that you are engaging in pursuing peace with men and uh, sanctification for yourself, you can question potentially whether or not you are actually in faith because there should be some kind of sanctification process going on in your life, something that you make a priority because you are in this faith walk, okay? It's a natural outflow of what you say you believe. That's, you know, by definition, what does it mean to believe or to have faith? Can someone define that a little bit? You should have looked those. That should be a word. Do me a favor. Before we go any further, stop and pull out from last week all of your word studies because you may be needing those. I keep bringing them up, and I don't want you to just be sitting there looking at me like you're stunned. But I want you to find those word studies that you have from last week's homework. Let me pull out mine, too, while I'm 
giving you orders. Okay. Boy, I got a bunch. And I did some extras too, so I've got like four or five pages front and back here of word studies. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, let's start with holiness. Hebrews 12 gives us an illustration uh, concerning our, our uh, faith walk with God, correct? What is the illustration that's given to us in, in chapter 12, verse, verses 1 and 2? A race, right? Concerning that race, he says what? What are we to do concerning it? Hebrews 12, we have illustration. Okay, so the first, the first point he makes is that we are to run with endurance. So what is the word endurance? Give me a definition on endurance. 12.1. Let's define that word endurance. What number is it? Thank you, 5281, and it's H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E, right? Okay, and it means, it, you said it means, endurance means endurance. That's very good, Celeste. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, steadfast. <laughs> okay, I have to. Steadfast, consistency. I like that one, patient continuance. I don't like patience part, but I like continuance part. Oh, I like that. Withstanding, and say it again, withstanding. Okay, and I'm going to sh sh shorten this to just one word. I'm just going to use the word hardship. So withstanding prolonged hardship, is that the, the fullness of it, basically, and, and all those various other ways. Okay, good. Mine said to bear up under difficult circumstances. Same thing, to bear up under. Withstanding prolonged hardship, up, uh, bear under. Bear up under. Okay, all right, so that's the word endurance, that we are to run with endurance. And the second thing it tells us then about running this race that we are, illustration is to run a race. There's a preparation for that race, though. Yeah, okay, so we are to lay aside, well, I can add that in here, okay. To lay aside... Sin and encumbrance. And that's in 12. Is that in 1 also, Craig? Is that verse 1 also? Okay. Okay, so lay aside sin and, and encumbrances. It comes before running with endurance. Right, but still, it's, it's part of this, 
the instruction concerning this race. And that's what we're trying to do is right now develop what is this race about and what's it for, okay? And so right now, just in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we see an illustration given to us. And um, again, Kay had gave you instructions in your homework to go to your how-to study book and look this up if you were familiar with various ways of, of demonstrating things like this. And this is simply an illustration. The illustration is a race. And so then she took you to quite a few cross-references that in, uh, use that same idea of, in, of uh, the illustration of either a race or something else and showed you how they're all kind of pointing in the same direction concerning how we are to run that race. So first of all, run it with endurance and lay aside sin and encumbrances. Now, how does that fit, the idea of laying aside sin and encumbrances, fit with, with the definition that you see in endurance? Does it fit in any way? <laughs> Would anybody else like to talk? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Carrie. Because that's part of the steadfastness and the uh, uh, withstanding prolonged hardship is to, you know, lay aside that sin and encumbrance that yeah. prevents you from Exactly. For one thing, what have we already just discussed about what it is our goal is concerning our relationship with God? In 10 and in 14, we're to pursue sanctification, which is the subject matter back up into verse 10, which says we are to be what? Holy. holy. And so if you're to be, if the goal is to be holy, then laying aside sin and encumbrances seems to be a logical step, right? In that race, in that running of a race, you lay them aside because the goal is to attain something holy. Yeah. Right. Anything not needful is is a problem. It weighs you down. It distracts you. It can in, can be common encumbrance and I like the idea that you said that it can actually wound you because that takes us back to what Lise brought up in those verses about the idea of making paths straight and strengthening things that are weak but you can actually weaken your own self by not removing those encumbrances right can you see that in your own spiritual faith walk then when you consider your own walk with God what are some of the encumbrances and Kay asked you to evaluate that Talk about what were the sins and encumbrances in your own life. Now, I don't, we don't need full confessions here or anything, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, really, I don't want to know all of the details. However, are there, can you see the application of this, that why it's necessary for us, number one, to take stock, to take the time. I think it's so easy to come into a, the Christian faith walk, by the way, at least in the way that faith was presented to me when I was young. Um, it was all about just basically getting in the door and then you're done, you know. Just believe, pray this prayer, walk the aisle, get baptized, you're good. 
And, and by the way, it's going to be happily ever after in a bed of roses. Now that is kind of the, the gospel story that I was fed as, even as a little girl. And I understand it's because you're trying to entice people into something you find joyful and, and full of peace and, and all those things are true. And yet what we know is that God has already warned us that the, that the race that you are embarking on as, as a Christian and in your faith walk is not necessarily a, a bed of roses. Already we see that we are called to be responsible to clear the path before us, that there's some some things that we are to do once in faith to make the changes in our life that line us up with God for the purpose of holiness, okay? Laying aside sin and encumbrances is one thing you and I are responsible to do in our own lives. And only we really, really, truly know what our sins are and what our encumbrances are if we're honest with ourselves right? We know where we're weak. And we each have our own little quirkinesses, right? We've each, although I would say all of us are practically perfect. <laughs> but, but still, <laughs> practically. <laughs> However, and I, I, you know, that's what the author does. I, I believe better things of all of you, <laughs> right? And things which accompany salvation, right? Okay, so I, I like to believe the best in all people, including myself sometimes. However, when there's opportunity, as there was this week, to do soul searching and to real, if, if you actually did take the time, and it's hard to do that because sometimes it's painful, yes? But when you sit before the Lord and, and, can, and do as she asked you to do, list what are your sins? Where are you, where are you weak? What are the things that trip you up in life every single time? I can tell you right here, it's the same thing that God uses to glorify him. It's the same thing that trips me up. It's my big old fat mouth. Because I say everything that I'm thinking, it comes right out of my mouth. And I have, I have gotten better as I've gotten older. Believe it or not, <laughs> it's hard to believe. But I tend to wear all my emotions right on my face. And, and whatever I'm thinking just comes out of my mouth. Um, and I've learned that sometimes you don't need to say everything, you know, and that's one of those things that God has disciplined me in through the years by hard knocks, you know, hurting people or hurting myself, you know, by learning through the, the disciplines of the Lord. Okay, so lay aside in sin and encumbrances is what you were to examine for yourself. Does anybody want to share on that? I didn't think so. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> What's the next thing? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think we really want to talk about that. Not out loud to everybody, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's a decision between the better and both. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that is huge. And, and, boy, there are so many things that we can lay at the foot of the cross. And when we do that, the better and the best become obviously good and bad. Often, right? I mean, it, it often, if we truly take them before the Lord and don't hold them to ourselves for our own reasoning and our own emotional, how we feel about things. But if we actually take it before God and lay it at the foot of the cross, then God illuminates what's good and what's evil, right? Well, it doesn't even necessarily have to be bad, though. It 
Or the good and the bad. Or okay. Right, but in regards to sin and right, but in regards to sin and encumbrances is what I'm talking about. I mean, you're right. That's a whole other subject. There are there are things that sometimes it's benign, and God will use either path that you take, and He's fine with either path as long as whatever path you're journeying with Him in it is lived unto him, right? And that he's opening that door. And I, I know myself and um, my friend Celeste and others of you in here, we all have this conversation all the time. You know, you're praying for God to open the door or close the door and make it clear. Where are you supposed to go? Are you supposed to go here? Or are you supposed to go here? Okay, that's a little different subject. This is about laying aside sin and encumbrances. And in that regard, laying aside sin and encumbrances, when you take those things which you're not certain about before the Lord and lay them before the foot of the cross, what does the cross do? It illuminates good versus evil for you. And if you're honest and allowing God's word and his glory, who he is, to reveal to you what is truly good or not, it'll become very obvious, correct? But what is your responsibility to do? Take it to the foot of the cross. You have to be willing to do that in your life on all kinds of things, right? So lay aside the sins and encumbrances, and I'm just going to put a big cross right there to say the idea of taking it to the foot of the cross. One other point in this, in, cha in chapter 12, verse 2, another... Uh, uh, instruction concerning running your this race is what are you to also to do fix eyes on Jesus now here's another one I don't know if you did a word study on this this is that was chapter 12 verse 2 fixing the eyes on Jesus I looked up the word fixing or to fix your eyes upon Jesus did anybody else happen to do that I just thought it was very interesting um, just to illuminate it so that my mind would, would absorb the, com the command or the instruction better. And sometimes when you get in there, the word study is not necessarily, you know, mind-blowing, right? But it still does help to enhance or develop it in a way of, for you to see it more clearly. So here's the word fix. It's number 872. A-P-H-O-R-A-O. And it means to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on something. To have a fixed attention on, and I like this one the best, to have no other distractions. Doesn't it sound very much like the idea here of laying aside anything that encumbers you? The idea of fixing your eyes is how you lay aside other encumbrances is by, I'll just put this over here, have, to have no other encumbrances. Oh, no, not encumbrances, to have no other distractions. Okay, so now, at this point, we are ready to begin to go through a journey. We're going to spend this morning looking at a, a hundred quadrillion cross-references. 
Uh, keep your word studies out in case we decide we want to go back to them. But what I would like you to do is to open your observation worksheets. Hold on, I've got to, I think I'm going to take this out. I'm going to take chapter 12 out of my book and lay it in next to where we are looking at our cross-references that we did. We're going to start in day one. And we're going to try to answer the question, what is the race about and for? That's the first question we're going to address. So looking in day one, you did 1 Corinthians 9, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 4, um, John 15, Acts 5. I think those are also... Also, okay, so tell me, what did you find is, is the answer to this question? Let me just write the question up here for you. What is the race about? What is the race about and for? So that's our question, and it's on from our cross-references. Now we'll start with day one. What do you see? Start in 1 Corinthians 9, very first one. What did you see there? Okay, so that's what it's for. The purpose of it is okay, to win a wreath imperishable. Now, what is the analogy in that one? Just like we had an illustration about running the race in Hebrews 12, here we have another an analogy, right? What is it talking about there? What, about the, what is this wreath that they're talking about? Okay, rewards. And what is the analogy? What is he drawing from in their minds? The idea of games, right? Running in the game, the Olympic games, for instance, right, which were so popular. All right. So he says you're to run, win a wreath imperishable. So what is it that they ran literally in that day, and the the wreath that they received was what? A laurel a laurel branch that was made into a crown, and that crown would be putting upon their head. And therefore, the laurel crown is perishable, right? It will dry up and go away eventually, right? So the comparison then is you run a race, and, and by the way, in that running of a race, what are some other things that you do in order to attain that victory? Training. There's training. What, is, what else does it say? There's a lot of self-discipline in this, right? In order to run that kind of a race, you must, well, first and foremost, you must make your mind up you want to, right? Just like any other race out there, you know. If you want to do this, you have to determine early you really want this and that you're willing to do anything and everything in order to get there, correct? And so here he says that you have to exercise self-control in what kind of things? All things, right? What are all the things that are going to affect you running a, a literal race, a physical race? I, I mean, it goes on, right. 
Okay, oh yeah, the weather. We can't control the weather, but what you can control is the training part. So in the training, it's not a matter of just getting out to the race and running it, but there's also some other factors involved, and you need to consider all those things, right? And you have to say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to run this race, that means I have to stop eating potato chips and drinking Coke every night, right? <laughs> I'm going to have to eat good vegetables and good fruits. I'm going to have to drink plenty of water, right, and get fresh air and sunshine, and what else? Good sleep, which I am so guilty of not doing good, good rest. Now, that's just a few things. Maybe vitamins, other kinds of nutrients. There's all these things that you have to consider. So when you take that analogy then and you put it into your faith walk with God, what are some things that you need to consider if you're going to have a successful race with God in preparing yourself for this race of faith? Be, okay. Actually, one of the first things he does to them is, is basically chastise them for not being in the Word, right? Okay, so they have to be in the Word, discipline. Now, we are definitely speaking to the choir when we're talking about that. In this group, you all are definitely in the Word. If you've gotten any of your homework done, you've spent hours, right? Um, yes? You also need a, a good trainer, and the Lord tells us keep our eyes on Jesus. He's our trainer. Yep. And on the cloud of witnesses. That's, That's right. I love that, the way that you brought that in. Okay, so actually you hit kind of on two different things. Number one, back to um, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the ultimate trainer, right? So we're to look to his example. And the best way to find what Jesus' example is is through what Donna brought up, the Word of God. So you stay in the Word of God, you look to Jesus and specifically, and his examples. That's part of the process for you and I to run a good race. It's not just, I think I'll take a good Bible study and I'll get to know my friends and I'll just hang out and have a good time. Sometimes, you know what, guys, I know this for a fact. You've had to really alter your schedules at home and, and squeeze things out in order to make time to get your homework done. I know that because I do it every week too. And it has to be set as your priority. If you don't make it the priority, what happens? You fall. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll, I'll, yeah. Now, you know what? Every one of us have got weird weeks occasionally where it does get pushed aside for urgencies that are occurring. But on the whole, the consistency in your life, the long-term picture of what's going on in your life regularly should be that it takes the priority. Do you guys remember the old demonstration that a pastor gives or a Sunday school teacher of uh, how to get the sand and the rocks and the pebbles all into the jar and fill it with water, right? Does anybody know how you make it work? Do you guys remember the story? Yeah, okay, tell me the story. So you take a jar no, the big things first. The big things first. Like the rocks, and then you can put the smaller rocks and filter down. You can put sand. And then the sand, and then the water. That's exactly right. So the analogy that in that picture, in that imagery, those the, what do we used to call those object lessons, right? And I loved object lessons. Those were always, for me, they were the, one of the best teaching tools because that's kind of how my brain works is visually, and it's like when you see it, you go. 
oh, I get it. <laughs> you know, like I didn't get it before. I'm going, no, I'm busy with the water. <laughs> it's the fun part, right? The water is your playtime, right? But you got sand and, and pebbles and rocks you got to deal with. And if you don't put them in first and do them in the right order, even in your prioritizing, then sometimes the sand or the pebbles or the water can push out the space that you needed for your big rocks. So in a, in a race, just like in preparing your body to run a race, a physical race, spiritually you have a spiritual race to run and if you're going to prepare yourself for that, there has to be prioritizing. You fix your eyes upon Jesus and you, and you understand that you are running a race to win something, right? In this case, we're not talking about winning salvation. We're talking about winning a reward. A, a, if nothing else, a well done, my good and faithful servant. And that would be enough for me to know that my Lord says, well done, Katie. And if he says that alone, I need nothing else. It's just to please him is what we, our goal should be. So winning that wraith me, means prioritizing your life, setting your eyes upon Jesus, who's the biggest rock of all. He goes in first, right? Okay, good. Um, Another thing that he, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 22 to 27, is that the correct verses that you all looked at? Was there anything else that you are striving for in this? Winning a wreath, imperishable, and what else? Okay. To run it... It, with the discipline, or, or as they call it, the self-control in all things, right? We, how we are to run it. So what we are running for and how we're to do it is run it. Uh, let's see. Let me do it. This run it exercising self-control. I like this part the best. In all things. Okay. Okay, good deal. Okay, so that these are both in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Let's see, how am I going to do this so that you guys can see this? I'll do it up here. 1 Corinthians 9, and it was 22 to 27. All right, that's our first one. Our next one, let's look at 2 Timothy. 2, 5, and also 4, 7, and 8. And I know there's others, but let's just do this one first. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2, 5, and 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. What did you see there? What is the race for, and what is it about? Okay. Oh, Wait a minute. We have rule breakers in this room, I know. But you must run this race according to the rules. Whose rules? Who gets to make the rules? God does. So can you yourself reason something through and just out of, you know, plucking out of the air decide what you think is best or right or good? So the standard or the plumb line by which you measure what is good and evil, right or wrong, right, according to God, has to be then according to his word. His word. Is that a novel idea for most people? 
Yes, it is. They do not understand what good, and if you don't believe that's true, just look at some of the laws that we have passed in our land. Things that we have allowed our nation to, uh, to condone or allow or support, which are obviously contrary to God's word. And yet you, you and I both know that there are many a Christian who claim to be Christian, yet they'll go and vote yes for those things. Well, everybody has the right to choose. So they, vi- they go ahead and vote for it. I hope I'm only, I'm only speaking to people who would not do that. But, but, but if not, this is an opportunity for you to understand why God says the standard is not you and your thinking. And the standard is not the, the, the world in which you live in, their thinking. But the standard is whose thinking? What God says about it. So you go to find out what God says about any issue that's on the ballot to be voted for, and you base your decision on how you're going to vote based on what God's word says about that subject. Yes? Absolutely. It'd be better to just... That's right. That's true. That's true. But to me, what you have just done then, Craig, is you have stepped even deeper into that faith walk of, of uh, running with uh, endurance, but with laying aside sin and encumbrance as you've determined you think this might be an encumbrance and you're uncertain about it. So you're saying, you know what, until I do know, I'm not going to give my my vote of approval for something that I'm not sure how God thinks on that. I want to wait and see. Maybe I need to actively pursue insight from people I trust, and I need to, first and foremost, what? Read God's Word. Open the Word of God, or get online and Google the subject from Scripture right? And find out what does God's word say about that subject. I mean, that, that's a pretty practical application, wouldn't you say, concerning your faith walk with God and how you, how you decision make. And I'm not talking just about a ballot either. About I mean, voting is all on our minds right now. We're so close to the election day here. But I know people who claim to be Christians, and yet they vote yes on all kinds of things which are obviously immoral, obviously contrary to God's word. And it makes me question whether or not they actually know God at all. It, I'm not trying to judge them per se, but I'm looking at that. But I got to say, turn this around and point all those fingers right back at me, and that is, what about me? Am I making sure that the decisions that I'm making and the things that I'm engaging in in my life, business ventures, friendships, um, um, social activities, whatever they are, when I go to engage in that social activity or in that business activity, is there anything in that that, that's a clear contradictory violation to what God's standard is? Second Timothy two five. What do we see? We must compete according to rules. To the rules. Now they were using again an analogy about a race, but in this case, it's God's word is the rule. 
right? In um, Hebrews 5.14, somebody flip back to that real quick. What does he say? When you, when you talk about competing according to the rules, what has he told them in chapter 5, verse 14, about the rule maker and where we find what's, what the rules really are so that we know how to live, how, how to run this race? What does it say? Yes, because a practice with the word of righteousness, they learn then how to discern good from evil. So that's how you discern. Compete according to the rules. You will discern, you discern good from evil by God's word. And that's in Hebrews 5, uh, verse 14 just as a, as a cross-reference to this right out of our own area, right? Out of our own text. What else are you doing in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4? Okay, now who... You win a crown of righteousness. Who is that awarded to? All those who love his appearing. What is that, what is that appearing talking about? What appearing is that? His second coming, right? Obviously, it's not his first, although we, I guess you could love that one too. Uh, and you should, <laughs> but it's talking about something that's in the future yet, the coming, his second coming, and loving that coming. Um, interesting when you take that and you cu couple it with the, the other verses that talk about, uh, well, it isn't in this one, but in Thessalonians, for instance, the whole book is written uh, that you live your life that you may be, be found blameless at his coming, right? And how can you love Jesus is coming if you're fearful of it. If you have hesitations about it, if you're worried that maybe you're not measuring up, that you haven't lived a life well. Uh, do you know people like that? I do, that, that are not ready. And they'll tell you, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to see Jesus. I have not lived like I should. I am not doing the things right now that I should, right? And so, go ahead. There you go. That's exactly it. That you're to have. You're okay. Now repeat the whole the whole verse again. Let me hear it again. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Okay. So how do we run this race by abiding in Jesus? The abiding in Jesus then makes us so that we will not be ashamed of His coming. Because if what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does that mean? Respond. Just do what he says, do what he 
Okay, to be obedient, to be close to him, in other words, in fellowship with him. And in doing that, by staying in close fellowship with God and by being obedient to him, it, it takes me back to he, where Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, right, do not harden your hearts, but rather enter into the rest of God. And so if we are abiding in him and listening to him and being obedient to him, Will we have need to be ashamed at his coming? No, we will not. So abide in him. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm talking about the rapture. Yes, I have First John. I'm going to put First John two. I meant that would have been twenty eight and twenty nine, correct? That you got that one from, right, Craig? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So we are going to win a prize. It's to win a prize. Of righteousness, which is given for loving his appearing. Okay, and that's in Second uh, Timothy four eight. Okay, so it, you're to run it in self with uh, exercising self control. You're your goal is to win a wreath imperishable, one that will not perish. You are to compete according to those rules, um, discerning good from evil by God's word. You're to abide in him so that you will not be ashamed. I could put that on here. So you will not be ashamed. There's something about putting these things in list form that somehow it just really, for me, it really gels it. I don't know why, but it, I can see the picture so much better. Win a prize, to win a prize of righteousness, and that's given to those who love his appearing. All right. Oh, I may have, I may have just looked at it wrong. Okay. It, but in the case of the crown, the crown is a prize. So, I mean, it's, yeah, semantics there. But you're right. It is a crown of righteousness. Okay. All right, Philippians uh, 2, you also have in Philippians 3. How are you to run according to Philippians 2.16? Not in vain. And the, how is it that you do not run in vain? By doing what? Mm -hmm. Does anybody else have it? Philippians 2. By holding fast to the word of God. Have you, have you begun to see a theme in this? It seems to be like, it just if, even if we, we're going to kind of st stop right in this place here, we're at, right at the end of this particular, we're not going to beat this dead horse anymore, okay? But what we want to see here is then in this particular race, there's really one major focus, and the focus is upon the source of our salvation, Correct? 
And that source of information for our salvation comes through the word of God by abiding in him, seeking him, fellowshipping with him, right? And, and being disciplined in our personal pursuit of it, pursuit of the knowledge of who God is and of what his ways are. You and I cannot know the difference between right and wrong if we do not, what God, do not know what God says about it. So God says to run this race, you and I must discipline our lives to hold fast to him. Holding fast to him is staying in his word. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, say it again then. I must have missed something. Okay, yeah. Okay. Running in vain and toiling in vain. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. Oh boy. Um, so the application here's the, here's some a few questions. How do we hold forth or hold fast the word of life? How do we live more self-controlled lives? And how do we eagerly look forward to his coming? How do we go about doing that in our lives? Okay. And I tell you, in the context of this book, too, one of the struggles that's going on for them is, is it seems to be are possible either persecutions or hardships against them, correct? How many of you have had a really serious hardship come into your life, the death of somebody really close to you, someone you really loved, or a severe illness, or a major financial blow to your household, anything that just yanks your whole world out from underneath your feet? How many of you have had that happen in your life? Everybody, just about. You've had some form or fashion of that. For those of us who have approached those moments in life and we've been in faith and we have been trained, how does that impact then when those real tough things occur? Okay, it helps you to cling. There you go. Yeah. Have you ever been through a time where you thought, I could never bear that, and then something like that happens to you? How did, how did you bear up? How were you able to bear up under the, the pressure? By reading God's word. Okay. By, by currently going back in then and beginning to read. What if you had not spent months or years in being in God's word and building principles of truth 
so that you knew what was right or wrong. You knew what God said about certain things. You, you're solidly secure in his love and who he is and his character. If you didn't have any of that built in you and hard things come, what can happen? Is there not a parable about that, about seeds and soil dropped along the road? Yes, Lisa. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Right. And because, and, and the reason you were okay with the outcome, as horrible as it was, is what? You got it, girl. The eyes were set upon Jesus, the goal, the place you, the idea where it talks about winning a, a wreath imperishable, she has her wreath imperishable. Before I do. Yeah, exactly. I'm so jealous. I think I remember having a conversation uh, one time uh, with other people who have had family members standing there going, it's not fair, you get to see Jesus before me, <laughs> right? But, you know, we, we joke about that in a j very joyful way and not in disrespect whatsoever uh, about the seriousness of death. I remember when my own daughter was at death's door. We were in Turkey, and she had a severe, severe asthma attack. Put her in the hospital. It, it, the host, I'm not even going to go into it. It was a horrible thing. But in the midst of that, I had a sense of calm and peace and it was because I had already built my, my foundation in the word of God on the knowledge that God is the sovereign of life. My daughter's very life's breath was held in the palm of God's hand. God's the one who discerns the day. He's numbered your days even before one of them comes into existence. All these verses sounding familiar? He is the one that knows the day of your beginning before, or the day of your end before your beginning even. And so knowing that and knowing that God loves my daughter more than I do, although I loved her greatly, knowing that um, whether she lived or died, I knew where she would be that she had faith in God, and I trusted that. That gave me peace to know that my daughter, if God was not calling her home, he would preserve her life. And in that, I had a sense of common. I remember my, my um, commander's wife who came over to help me pack, to get with packing and so forth. She was um, very sweet. Anyway, she came. But she and, one, and another, the general's wife, came also. And they stood there watching me as I was packing and talking with them, and I was getting things ready to, we were, the, they were medevacking an aircraft in for us, and we were leaving out by medevac. And um, she just looked at me, and she said, you're so calm. <laughs> and I can tell you, it's, the, it's what you said, Lisa, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. You don't know where the source of that strength comes from until you need it, and God gives it. 
And it's based upon exactly what he's saying here. You have got to equip yourself and prepare yourself for the race that's before you. This life is no guarantee for a, for a smooth path. You must clear the path as best you can. And then when difficulties come, you are prepared because you have equipped yourself by having abiding in God, having abided in his word, having stayed close to him in prayer. Jesus' example is a great one. We've got to go look at that real quick. Um, I'm jumping all over the place on this, but it's really good. What was Jesus' example of suffering, right, of, di- of enduring the discipline? Let's go to Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. What did we learn there about Jesus? Okay, now, he did that in the midst of suffering, correct? In the midst of suffering, so let's put that, Jesus' example, in the midst of suffering, he lifted up prayers. And, and there's a lot more of that. But he lifted up prayers to the one, right? To the one, and I'm just going to put it this way, the one able to save. Now, what does that mean, the one who is able to save? Was When Jesus lifted up his prayers to the one who is able to save, what is that actually saying in there? We know that God did not save him from the cross, right? So it didn't save him from death, but... But the key word here is what? Able. Thank you. You guys did good. The one that's able. And he did not remain in death. Of course not. But I'm just saying. He died and he was resurrected. Exactly. That is true. Um, but I'm looking at this in the practicality of the subject matter here of us enduring in difficulties in our own life, right? And allowing the process of disciplines and uh, for sa- the purpose of sanctification. It literally said that, what did Jesus learn in, in 5.8? He learned obedience from how? Okay, he learned obedience from what he suffered, Right? In his case, he was learning obedience to the Father, and he was demonstrating it. Not that he would have ever failed in it, right? Not that he ever had a weakness to not do that. However, he did battle the weakness of what? Of his flesh, his physical flesh. Was it not a, uh, a uh, temptation, possibly, to rise up and say, be gone, right? And to just simply wave a hand or speak a word and and for the whole thing to come tumbling around their ears rather than his. But he learned obedience from what he suffered, it said, from the things which he suffered. That's in 5.8, Hebrews 5.8. And then um, he knew that God 
his, his, his offering up of prayers and supplications to the one who was able at that time, what does that t- tell to you and I? Why is that significant? And why did he do that? He knew his, his end. It's kind of like what you were saying, Lisa. You knew the end, and yet I guarantee you there were plenty of prayers lifted up. Right? So... Yes. Okay. 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 Maybe, maybe even the whole thing was simply there for our benefit, that we would learn the the proper way to handle in the midst of dire circumstances, potentially even face. He says in Hebrews, "You have not suffered to the point of shedding blood," right? So he's, he's telling them at this point, you're not yet there. But what he's not saying is they won't be there. What we had seen in chapter 10 was what about people who had walked a faith walk? There were a lot of people who were martyred. Some of them were sawed in two, some, you know, all kinds of horrible things, right? There were people who died. But were there some who lived? Yes. Yes. And who gets to determine that? Again, we're back to God. So Christ, in his moment of suffering, he lifts up prayers to the one who is able to save. Not that he expected God to save him from death. We certainly know, as Craig pointed out, that he would, even, he would actually resurrect him. Kind of in the same way Abraham, he was willing to offer up his son, believing that God could bring him back from the dead, right, would raise him from the dead. However, he knew he was going to die. He physically was going to go to that expenditure for us. It was necessary. It was required. And by the way, Hebrews tells us it was prepared from before the foundation of the world. It was a plan from the beginning. But yet Jesus, for the purpose, I believe, of demonstrating to us how we learn obedience through suffering, he lifts up prayers to God. Because God is able, and, and in what ways is God able? But I think also he's able to save us from the temptation to give up. Okay, you know, there you go. When you're in the midst of suffering, there, there may be that temptation to give up. Absolutely. When we lift up our prayers to God, he says, no, this isn't beyond what you can handle. That's exactly right. Have we seen in the book of Hebrews so far verses where it says those that hold fast to the end are the ones who actually basically win the prize, which is that they are in, in Christ, right? That they belong to Christ and that they're of Christ's household. Oh, say that again. He was heard because of what? Okay, okay. Well, you just did my whole thing here. That's ex- you did good. You did really good. No, excellent. He was heard because of his piety is what it says in our translation, right? Well, wait a second, 5-7. But when you do a word study on piety, it means submission. It means reverent submission. I know. Yes, they did. (laughs) Okay. So it says that he was heard. Now, this is interesting because he wasn't heard because 
uh, meaning he got what, what he, his flesh wanted, which was rescue from the pain probably at that, in that particular quality of it, but that he was heard because of the fact that he was willing. One of the things that came out of his lips to the father when he was in the midst of that, he says, Father, about this cup that I'm about to drink, what? If, if possible, remove it, but... But... Not my will, but yours. yours. That's that reverential submission. That's what Jesus is looking for in you and I when we are in, in the midst of a really serious trial or difficulty. If you are in the midst of something and struggling right now, if there is pressure upon you and you are feeling the, the wane of it, the weight of it, the, the anxieties of it, he says, do what Jesus, he's our ultimate example. Press, keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. His example is in the midst of his own suffering. He cried out to the Father, the one who is able, right? But he did so, and he was heard because of his piety. And so you and I would have that same measure of piety. I'm going to give you this word. Piety is number 2124. Oh, that's an E. E -I -A. Looks like a kind of funny the word there okay and then it says um reverence towards god or reverent submission you not my will but your will And I didn't look that verse up, but that's what, I, what came to my mind as I was thinking about this. He was heard because of his piety. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I have people in my life who call sometimes and say, "Will you please pray? I know you've got it in with the big guy." Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could he you can talk to him because he listens to you. So, would you please pray for me? And, you know, of course, my response always is, well, you do know that you can pray yourself. But, you know, yeah, but you know him, you know. <laughs> you got it in good with him or whatever their thing is. But it's all, it all comes back to how do you, when the hard times come, how are, how are you going to be prepared to run that race with endurance, to persevere to the end, to hold fast until the end. How are you going to do that? The Word of God has taught us this week through the subject of sanctification, the sharing of His holiness is essential, that we run with endurance, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, that we are, what we're running for, but how we're going to run it also, running it 
exercising self-control. There's a quality to this faith walk that we're in that we're responsible for. And no one in this room can make you do it. Only you can determine in your heart that it's important enough for you to do so. And I can guarantee that, that if you haven't been through a super difficult thing, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure most of us have, but if you haven't, when that hard time comes, this training that you're going through right now is what is going to prepare you to run with endurance. It's this time in the seriousness of God's word, in studying to know him better, not just intellectually, but once you attain to the, it says, how do you come into faith? By hearing of the word of God. You have to start with the hearing and the reading and the studying. And then from there, it gets deep down into the heart and transforms your life. It renews your mind. And in that, there's an intimacy with God. You can't just go emotionally to God. That is not going to work. If you approach God purely through an emotional encounter, it's going to be fleeting. It's through the solid knowledge of truth that you come then to an emotional place with God that's lasting and that's firm because then it's based, your emotions then are based on truth, on, not, on what he says is true, not what you think or feel, Right? Amen. Thank you. That's right. Okay. All right. So Jesus' example of that. Now, this is really interesting to me. We see in chapter 12, verse 5 of Hebrews, there's a verse that's quoted. He says to them, though, first, he rebukes them. At the first of verse 5, what does he say to them? What have they done? They have forgotten something again. Remember back in chapter 5 when he says, you need to press into maturity because you're not doing that, right? And now he's saying, and you've forgotten some of the things that you did know, even from those other elementary things which you need to press beyond. You've also even forgotten some of the elementaries. Well, one of the elementaries he takes them back to. He takes them back because they haven't pressed into the maturity of the new, the new covenant like they should. He goes back to the old and he gives them a quote right out of Proverbs, right? In Proverbs 3, it kind of comes out of a larger passage, which is chapter 3 of Proverbs, verses 1 to 12. And you and I looked at that, right? What do we see in there that it says... Uh, concerning the idea of being sanctified and uh, being called to a life of discipline. What is it that he takes them back to know concerning a truth, an elementary truth about God and, and God's relationship with man? That's exactly right. So he quotes the part that says, if you're actually a son, God will discipline you. And he does discipline you, right? So in quoting that, we see, let's see, let's put this on here. Proverbs uh, 3, 1 to 12. And he says, God disciplines those he loves. Um, how did God show that to them in ancient days? Was that a truth that they, as a nation, had already experienced? <laughs> oh, yeah. We think about our study in Ezekiel, if nothing else, right, where God ca literally brought the, the Chaldeans against them and cast them off their land. And, and he left their, their temple and their city, and he left them literally vulnerable then to their enemies. Because why? 
what had they not done? They had not been obedient, and they had not adhered to his word. They had not kept close to God, right? So uh, we see that if it, the, the principle is that um, if they keep God's commands, they will have a life of peace, right? If they keep God's commands, that's the old principle, does it hold true today? I almost ran out of room there. It's okay. They will have a life of peace. And um, anything else? When you looked at that ver that particular passage, what else did you see in there? What were some other principles about God and relationship with God that they should have already known? The elementary principles that they had had not left and, and had. Remember, he was saying, "Leave the elementary principles and press into maturity." Well, they're supposed to have known the elementary principles, but obviously they had even forgotten them. So he quotes them, one of their old elementary principles, and he says, this is something you should already have known about God, right? So what, what were some of the things that they should have known about relationship with God from that Proverbs uh, 3? God has taught them from the beginning what? That, that they, okay, that they... Okay, that they will be disciplined. If they keep God's commands, they will have peace. If they do not, God will discipline. Let's just put it that way. That's pretty good. Okay. All right, so that was the first point. And so there's a quote. Remember again, what is the purpose of a quote in a passage? When you're reading along, giving doctrines, giving instructions, giving information, all of a sudden you hit a quote. What's the purpose for a quote being dropped in? To support what's been said, to give enhancement to it, right? Or to make a point. And so in this case, he's making the point. I'm ashamed of all of you for not maturing in your faith. I am, I am disturbed by the fact that you have remained... Uh, um, in those elementary teachings and not having pressed on. You should be teachers by now. You've had plenty of time. But now I'm also going to say to you, I'm also really concerned because you haven't even remembered the elementary things that you were supposed to have known. So in other words, they are all, they are, in his rebuke, he is suggesting that some among them, not all of them, but some among them are people who simply are giving lip service to God but really know nothing about their God. They haven't pressed into the new, and they really don't even know or remember the old. And he is rebuking them, saying, you are to have known the old and built upon that. And that's what relationship with God is about. And for those of you who have not done either, you've both forgotten the elementary and you've not pressed into the new. And so he's warning them through a scripture. He says, what happened to those who did not adhere to God's word in the old and those elementary teachings? God disciplined. And trust me, if God steps into discipline as opposed to you disciplining yourself, it can be much more serious than if you, if you handle it for yourself. If you impose your own discipline in your life, it's going to be a gentler ride for you. Doesn't mean it's going to be a piece of cake, right? But it's going to be a better ride for you. If God has to discipline because you refuse to do so, then he will. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, and that and that's a great example, especially under that kind of hardship, where he was in danger of angering those who were basically his captors, and those who had authority over him. He could have either lost his position of opportunity there and been cast out, or he could have even lost his life, right? Possibly, but yeah, that was that's a good example, huh? And then there was the light. Then, then there was the other three guys that got into the. So, what is God's purpose and discipline? Let's look at day four's homework, page sixteen. What are the things that He is attempting to teach us? What is God's purpose in discipline? According to the things that we have looked at this week. Okay, so you're going to look in Psalm 119, Deuteronomy 8, James 1, 1 Peter 1. Let's see, is there any others? Um, we can look again at Hebrews 12, uh, 12, 12 and 13. All right, tell me what is his purpose. Uh, he, she mentioned, uh, I can't remember how Kay says it, except that it had to do with David. What, you know, did she basically kind of like, did you agree with David in what he said in Psalm 119, 71, and was it 69 or something like that, right? Okay, so tell me what you see in Psalm 119, Deuteronomy 8. What is God's purpose and discipline? Okay, to keep us from going astray. Which verse is that? Okay, to keep us from going astray. When David was disciplined by the Lord, what did he say happened to him? What was the result and... Okay, actually, isn't that an interesting way of putting it? He says it was good that I was, that I was afflicted when I went astray. It was good. How many of you feel like when God has disciplined you for going astray, that it was good? <laughs> but, but, so what is wrong with our perspective then on this? Is David right or are we right? It's not good or it is good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, David, when he did it, he, he blew it big time, too, didn't he, in some of his, yeah. Okay, but so is David right that it's good when God disciplines us? Or are we right when we say it's not good? What is, the, what is it that we're talking about that's not good? It is not pleasant for the moment. Gee, have I heard that verse somewhere before? Where does it say that discipline is not good for the moment or doesn't feel good for the moment? That's out of 
our passage in Hebrews 12, right? That at the moment it does not seem pleasant, but, but if you have the right perspective about discipline when it comes into your life, whether it's a hardship that's coming upon you or whether it's something that you imposed upon yourself through disobedience and sin and not disciplining yourself, either way, when the discipline comes... What is to be your attitude which will help you to be able to line up with what David says, and that is it was good that I was afflicted? What's going to help us come to that place? Yeah, you probably need to be concerned if you... Okay. Okay. There you go. Because, so what you're looking for then is the outcome of it and knowing that even though at the moment it's kind of like a diet, which is so painful at the time. <laughs> but in the end, what? You get, you get the weight off, your heart is better, your knees feel better, your body feels better, right? You feel better. Same thing is true in righteousness. When you discipline yourself and you endure through the tough time of, of that disciplining, at the end, it bears out a, a, a fruitful uh, produce, a, a, a righteousness in your life. And what it assures for you then is what? That if you have exercised self-control, you're going to win that wreath imperishable. You, that you have competed against the, the, uh, according to the rules, you've been abiding in him, you are going to win a crown of righteousness for, for the desiring of his coming and his appearing. You don't fear his coming and appearing because you have been disciplined in your life and ordered your life correctly so that when he comes, you have no need to be ashamed. I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with where, I, you know, my, thi my thing is, oh, I'm so ready for Jesus to come. I am so ready to be, to be done with this life. But if God wants me to stay, I'll stay. However, I'm ready. But people look at me like, oh, that's a horrible thing to say. Don't say that. I'm like, why not? I'm ready. <laughs> I'm anxious to go. Not that I think that I've attained. It's just like Paul says, not that I think I've attained to it. Because but... Well, yeah, if you are so fearful of his coming that you, that you do not long for his appearing, then I would say it's time to do a, a, a self-check in your life. Self-examination is needed, right? All right, so what is God's purpose and discipline? To keep us from going astray, to teach us his statutes, That's what David said in Psalm 119. All right. What about in James uh, 1, 2 to 4? What is it going to produce for you? There you go. To produce endurance and what does that do for you? Okay, to make you, yours says mature. What translation is that? Oh, okay. Okay. 
Okay, perfect is what mine says, to make, to make you perfect. And in regards to being perfect rather than mature, because mature is much more narrow than perfect, because it goes on to actually explain what it means by perfect. In there. It produces endurance and makes you perfect, and then it explains it. How does he explain it? Okay, that you be complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, you are fully equipped to run the race that you're in, to have shed off those encumbrances, to to um, uh, what was the to lay aside sin and any encumbrance. And in doing that, then you have been fully equipped and fully prepared to run your race. Right? I love that. So that's what God's goal is. What is God's purpose in discipline? It's not for your harm. It's to equip you to make you complete and perfect, lacking nothing, so that you can endure in any race that comes before you. You can endure in any trial, in any circumstance, good or bad. And in the good times, you will also walk appropriately. I can tell you what, sometimes it's in the good times that we trip up the most. We, we, where our guard gets down, we lose the attentiveness to the, staying in touch with God. We stop the prayers flowing as often. You know, when you're under duress, you're constantly doing this with God. Pray, 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 pray. You just constantly have God in your mind, Lord, please, 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 please. You're begging, right, the whole time. But at least you're in communion with him. And that's what he wants. He wants communion. He'd much rather have your praises, right? But, he, but the communion is what he's after with our, in our relationship with you. So in tough times, we do that. But in good times, what happens? We get lax. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, and that's and that particular um I don't think we actually got one of those cross references. That's another quality. This is why, you know, although we are doing a, a, a basically kind of a a little snippet um, picture of what is sanctification and what is its purpose for us in our life. The subject of discipline comes up in here because what he has done and he has laid down the doctrines of your faith and he's saying you need to understand and to know who Jesus is, what he did for you, how he's the, your great high priest now. You no longer need to go back to that old way. How Jesus is a better covenant and, and in this covenant he is the mediator of a better thing. And it's better for you because it's a better way to approach God. And, and so once you know those doctrines, then he says, now you need to apply these things in your life. You know, to not just know about the doctrines, now let's see how you live it out. In the old system, everything was temple works. You went to the temple, you did X, Y, and Z, checked off the boxes, and it was all good, right? Do you think it's more or less complicated now? Okay. No. But is it, as cl- is it as easy to check a box in the life that we are living in faith? Well, we're empowered by the Spirit, and in that regard, it's, it's definitely easier, right? 
and we're free from the law, definitely a better thing because the law never saved anyway, right? It, was a, it really was only a tutor. But in, in this faith walk we have now, look, consider how many passages we looked at now and how many more there are yet that talk about the process of sanctification and all its various facets in your life. How you treat your neighbor, um, about the idea not uh, not forsaking your assembling, uh, loving one another, staying in God's commandment, being in prayer, uh, putting on uh, all the qualities and attributes of Christ, walking in a way that's man- a manner that's worthy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about what about sanctification, about how it can be lived out. And now you take those principles, which we've put up here, now start applying them in the lives of everyone just in this room here. How many various ways? Can that be applied? Well, we each have different lives. We each have different issues. We have each have different uh, objectives and passions even because of God's gifting of us. So the application, I think it can become very complicated. And in that, there's freedom. But the freedom still goes back to basic principles of two or three things. Abiding in him and knowing his word. Right? And if you abide in him and know his word, if you, are di- if you discipline yourself to do that, then you will be able to run this race successfully. All right. Uh, pardon? There you go. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, I want to, it's concerning the idea of uh, the purpose and discipline. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. And look again at the one thing where it talks about the feeble hands and the weak knees in verses 12 to 14. Um, What is uh, 12, 12 to 13? Did anybody do some research on this to see what the interpretation on this is about or what they think it might be about? Oh, that's good. That kind of takes you into like, what is it, um, Romans 14 or something like that about not judging the weaker. But but being an influence for them, you know, they're they're weaker, but you want to influence them to strengthen. Right. So in... In one regard, then it could be the, uh, the application of what's being talked about here could, could be not just about strengthening the, weak, the weaknesses of others is one quality, but you can turn it the other way and say, we, my weaknesses, right? So let, let's read that real quick. I just want to see what it says. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet. So it may be a collective statement. He may be saying that on the whole, as a congregation, each one of you individually do it and for the benefit of the whole do it. Correct? That's a great way of seeing that. I like that. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Last week I talked in the, uh, no, I thought I did it in the evening group. Maybe I missed it in this group. But I remember years ago, K. Arthur taught a lesson about shepherds and how they watch over their sheep and how they keep uh, sheep from going astray. Do you remember this, Carrie? And that, that if a shepherd has a sheep, a little lamb that keeps going astray, not staying on straight paths, right? And by that consequently become coming like the imagery here of a weak or feebleness, right? Weak needs or, or feeble knees or, or weak hands. He's saying, the sheep that goes astray, what does the shepherd do? He breaks their leg. He mends it. 
And then while it's healing, he carries that sheep on over his neck. And that sheep for those several weeks that he's been with that shepherd daily, about staying right there with him. And that shepherd then meets his every single need, brings him water, brings him food. He, he loves on him. He touches him. By, uh, by staying close to the shepherd in that manner for that period of time, what do you think happens at the end of the time when he removes the bandage and puts the lamb back on the ground and allows him to run? What happens? That lamb comes right back to the side of the shepherd. He doesn't want to leave his side. He has learned to love and depend on the shepherd. Isn't that a beautiful story, imagery? That's one of the stories I thought of when I, when I read this. I thought, yeah, because the way it's stated in here, he says, um, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. I thought of so that God doesn't have to intervene. He's, first he says, first and foremost, you discipline yourselves. But if you won't, God will. Just like the shepherd who has a, a wayward sheep. So that's one possible interpretation of that. Um, another one would be the idea of uh, putting out of joint, meaning, have you ever had, and I just had one, a really sore muscle, a sore shoulder, something like that, that's just got a twinge in it, a little bite, and every time you move it, it hurts, right? And have any of you, uh, oh, she's not here. Becky is one to talk to you about this because it just happened to her. If you don't take care of it, you just keep walking on it and treating it with disregard, what happens to it eventually? It gets worse. So things go from bad to worse. And that could be another interpretation on this, that if you don't take care of strengthening and if you don't make paths that are straight for your feet, the, then the limb, which is slightly lame, is now put out of joint. It goes, it goes from bad to worse. It's only going to get worse. If you don't discipline, discipline only leads you to a wayward path that's worse. If you, if you try, have you ever heard of the idea of walking the line? One foot in the world and one foot in God and one foot in the world and one foot in God. What happens when you're walking like that? Pretty soon you got the weak leg, right, becomes lame. And guess what? You straighten up and now where are you? You're in the world. You've, you've become lame. And so I think that's another way of looking at that verse, potentially. And both are very, I like the lamb story because it's such a sweet story. And I remember the imagery that Kay gave us on that, and it's never left me. But either is true, yes? If you don't pay attention to a weakness and straighten it out, can it get worse? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. That's right. So she gave you that as a cross reference, as a potential enhancement. So it's saying, yeah. And so what? What is she saying in that? You be responsible to discipline yourself, not walk the the fence. Don't go to the right and don't go to the left. Stay on the level path. And if you will discipline yourself, that which is weak will become strong. Right? Well, I would say, would you say sanctification is a serious subject matter? 
Here's, let me just run this down. We got like two minutes or so. I want to take you through. We looked at Proverbs 4. We looked at 1 Peter 1, and we looked at Ephesians 5, okay? Those were also in day four's homework. And the question that I want to ask you is, how will we be successful then in sanctification? What are we going to do? What are some things that these verses tell us that we can do, steps we can take? What does it say in Proverbs 4, 20 to 27? Yep, pay pay attention to your words. Oh, that one was speaking to me, okay? (laughs) I I didn't even put it on my list. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I have to go back and put it on my list because, like, it's the most important one for me, okay? Um, Incline your ears to his sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life for those who find them and health to their bodies. Watch over your heart with all diligence. I loved that one. Watch over your heart. Idea of setting your eyes on him and watching over your heart with all diligence. That's, those are, that's great. Let your eyes look forward. Did you see that one in there? Do not turn to the right or left, which is what Sarah had just said. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Turn from what? Turn away from what? Evil. Again, lay aside sin and any encumbrance. So that's in Proverbs 2. How will we be successful? Watching over our heart, letting our eyes look forward, not turning to the right or to the left, and, and turning away from evil. First Peter 15 to 22 tells us to do what? I love this one. Look at verse 17 specifically. Does anybody have that? First Peter 1, 17? First Peter 1, 17, do you have it? Oh, did I go too far? I went too far, but I like 17 better, so go on. <laughs> okay, so she just gave you one verse. That, yeah, she does that so often, and I always expand because I have to have co- context, so I keep reading, you know. All right, but I loved what it said in 1 Peter 1.15 concerning how are we going to be successful in this work of sanctification. In 17, it says to conduct yourself in fear during your stay upon the earth. And I thought how, how poignant that was in that, um, first of all, it reminds you that this stay upon the earth is temporal. This is not the goal or the end of it. We are, we are going to a specific end, and we need to remember that. And while we're here then, live this life in reverential fear and submission, right? Just like Jesus does with piety, which is reverential submission. In obedience to, to, to the truth, you purify your soul, souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Ephesians 5, 3 to 7 I like that one. In three and verse three and four, how do we find success in sanctification? Did you cat? Did you all have that verse in your sheet there? What do you see? Ephesians five, three and four. Uh, isn't that interesting? He's saying, don't be engaging in coarse gestures or speaking. Uh, we're, you know, coarse talking and joking and jesting, right? But in contrast to that, what are you supposed to speak out of your mouth? Thanksgiving to the Lord. Isn't that the truth? I've heard so many people say to me through the years, when you're in trials and tribulations, 
one of the best medicines for the heart is to sing praises to God. If you open the, the Psalms or the Proverbs and go through those words of praise that lift up God and who he is by reminding yourself that God is, as Jesus did in his time of weakness, crying out to the one who is able, by reminding yourself what he is able to do and who he is, how he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's, he, you know, he, he's the one that, that created your life. He is the one who's the savior of your soul. He is the one who gave all for your life. When you remind yourself of that great love that he has for you, then you get the confidence and the courage then to endure in the race. Rather than being complaining and grumbling or coarse gesturing or whatever the other things are, instead of doing that with your lips, rather you are singing praises to God. Um, any others? I like those one that took us to Revelation, 1 Corinthians 6 also. What did he say that you to remember when you're trying to endure in this race? What will not happen to the unrighteous? What will they not get to do? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very good, Diane. That's exactly right. And he, we saw that in the two Revelation uh, references, but also 1 Corinthians 6.10, reminding yourself that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that a motivator? Yes, yes it is. It is. All right. Well, that was sanctification, subject to sanctification. How does it fit into the book of Daniel? I want you to ponder on that. We'll discuss that next week. But, it, it, you know, obviously sanctification is, a, is an important subject.